All right, Maranatha, if we want to have our seats, finish up our conversations, grab your coffee. Uh, If you forgot your communion cups, don't stress, you can do that now or do it in the middle of the sermon. I won't be offended. A couple of quick announcements. Once again, remind you about community groups throughout the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. That's really where the life of the church is. Uh, You can go online and you can email some of our community group leaders. Ask them how they are gathering. We're doing it differently in different groups to help accommodate under the circumstances. So if you would go there, again, we would love for everyone to be a part of that. Members meeting, uh, August 23rd. And um, uh, we're just so thankful that you're here today to be with us. Uh, it is a, a joy to get together as the body and, uh, and worship together. So I'm grateful that you're here today. Uh, last week, we looked at four separate groups of people and their response to the worshiping of Jesus as he uh, followed through with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And today, our pastor's Our passage has us looking at one more separate group of people who also desire to understand and know Jesus. As well, we'll get to hear Jesus' own response in regards to the proper and faithful response of worship and service to Him. So we're going to be in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. If you would turn your Bibles there and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Uh, It's going to be up on the screen as usual. There's Bibles in front of you if you don't have one. Uh, we love for everyone to sort of uh, come and have the Word of God in their, ho- in their home. So if you don't have one, you're welcome to take that Bible in front of you. That's a gift, as well as there's a resource wall over there of other free books that uh, will help you understand what's written down here in God's Word uh, as a supplement uh, to what He's given us. All right, so this is John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. If you would, follow along with me on the screen or in your Bibles. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit." Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that we have this so we can hear from you on a daily basis. I pray, Lord, that in this time your spirit guides us and uh, opens our ears and uh, removes uh, the scales from our eyes so we can see this truth faithfully. Lord, help us to wrestle honestly with, um, with what you have for us today. I pray, Lord, that as we are challenged, that we, we don't fall under our own condemnation, but Lord, that we trust in your grace and uh, your revelation that you are trying to, to move us into a deeper likeness uh, of your Son. We are grateful for all that he has done for us. Help us today again to worship him rightly as we preach this word. It's in your Son's name we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that we do come to you. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so like I said, this passage breaks down pretty easily into two separate pieces. The first three verses, 20, 21, and 22, talk about these Greeks who have come to Jerusalem during the time of the Passover feast. And then uh, the following four verses, 23 through 26, 
show us Jesus' expectations for our service, or rather for faithful worship and service. So let's begin with the Greeks, as that is where the passage begins. Let's begin with the Greeks. So let me just reread real quickly verses 20, 21, and 22. It says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, these Greeks that John identifies could have actually fallen into two different categories. They could have been known as two separate groups of people. They could have been proselytes. Proselytes were these Gentiles who would, in fact, have, uh, would have converted and committed themselves to the full practice of the Jewish law. Essentially, they weren't born Jewish, but they chose to become Jewish, okay? Or the second possibility for these Greeks that John is talking about is that they would have been known as God-fears. This was the title that was given to these type of Gentiles. This, the name that was given to these people, these Gentiles, um, were for those who would come to the temple and desire to worship in the synagogue, but they actually didn't go through the full rituals of the Jewish law. They didn't go through the full ritual of circumcision, and therefore they wouldn't be fully accepted into the Jewish religion. Are you with me? So we hear these two separate groups. Now, I think, through study, I think that the second group is is what is more likely to be the group that John is talking about, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But first, I want to show you sort of what I'm talking about with the second group of God-fears, because we do have sort of a famous story uh, contained in God's Word about a a pretty certain famous uh, God-fear, as he's called. The story is found in Acts 8. There, we see uh, this man, Philip, this same Philip that's in our passage today. He's instructed by an angel of the Lord to get up, to to wake up and begin to walk south from Jerusalem towards Gaza. And on his journey towards Gaza, he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch, and we're told that this man was returning from worshiping in Jerusalem. So he was this, this Gentile man was going to Jerusalem to worship uh, God the Creator, and he was returning from there. And what we discover is that Philip, as he approaches this Ethiopian man, what we discover is that this man is struggling to understand what's written down in God's Word by the prophet Isaiah. He's wrestling with what the Scriptures have to say. He wanted to understand God's Word. And coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, we discover that this God-fear is actually reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 prophetically tells us about the suffering servant and how he would, through humiliation of sacrificing himself, he would make intercession for the transgressor before God. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Now, if you remember, where is Jesus actually headed at this moment with the triumphal entry? He's headed to the cross, right? He's headed to the cross to be sacrificed for our Sin, he came to intercede for us, the transgressors, against God. Isaiah 53 is saying this. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading about this as he's trying to understand the the picture of what God is, his purpose and plan. 
And it's such an incredible reality that the truth of Jesus Christ is so compelling that even a non-believer, even if he can't process the full truth of this faith, that their hearts can't help but wish it was true. This Ethiopian eunuch doesn't actually possess the Holy Spirit. He's, He's wrestling, trying to understand what God's word means, and he's just hoping that it's true. And that's what he tells Philip. And if you know the rest of the story, uh, he becomes a Christian. God gives him new life. And the Ethiopian eunuch is like, why shouldn't I just be baptized then? And Philip says, I don't know. I agree. Let's do it. He's given faith in that moment to follow after God in service to him. It's a glorious picture of what we're talking about. Now, Back to why I think that John is talking about those people, the God-fearers, and not proselytes, is because in part John talks about these Greeks right after he quotes those bitter and angry Pharisees. If you remember back in verse 19 at the end of our passage from last week, in their arrogance as they're watching the people worship Jesus in his triumphal entry, as they watch them in their arrogance, they say, look, the world has gone after him. And they think that they're saying something profound. They think they're commenting about all these people who simply don't belong, when in fact, just as we learned last week, the world would go after Jesus. The world would go after Jesus. His mission does stretch to every single tribe, tongue, and nation. People from all over the the area were coming to Jerusalem to, to worship at the Passover feast. And we know from God's own word that Jesus shows no partiality to any particular group, right? The world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, the world is and will go after Christ. Salvation is given to anyone through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the promise of the gospel. That is the promise of the gospel. Now, these Greeks, if they weren't proselytes, would not have been permitted into the temple. They would have had to remain in sort of the outer courtyard of the temple, hence why it's called the court of the Gentiles. And this was also the place, if you remember chapters months back, that we saw Jesus in his righteous anger heat up and burn against the indecency that existed there. If you remember back in John chapter 2, we witnessed how Jesus drove out the merchants as he, quote, cleansed the temple because it had been turned into a place of commerce and not a place of worship in the way that it was meant to be. The court of the Gentiles was meant to be a place to welcome in outsiders, people from the world, to, to recognize the true and one God that is holy and righteous. And that place had been turned into a a place of merchants, a place of commerce, and not allowed for worship like it was meant to do. Now, there's more. There's a lot to understand uh, in explaining that scene. So if you are interested, I encourage you to go back into our sermon archives and listen to that sermon and, and learn that lesson about worship. But I say all that to sort of set the scene for us today to explain these God-fears, because the outer court was likely, again, as close as these Greeks could get to being physically present in worship, for worship, and also because of the crowds, getting close to Jesus was just as unlikely. Getting close to Jesus was just and likely, but because they still desired to know Jesus, John tells us that they go and ask Philip, Jesus' disciple, for help. They seek 
him out. They seek Christ out through his people. Now, why did they choose to ask Philip? Actually, no one really knows. There isn't really a good answer as why they choose Philip. It could have been possibly that he was just simply the closest disciple to them at that time. Or, as some people think it's possible, that they went to Philip because of his name. That they chose Philip because of his name. Because you see, Philip was in fact a Greek name. And John tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And Bethsaida was actually populated uh, by Jewish and Gentile people. So maybe, maybe they thought that they would be, or that Philip would be more sympathetic to them and understand them better, therefore, to help them meet with Jesus. So they say to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And what they meant by this was that they hoped for the chance to actually have a conversation with Jesus, right? They didn't just want to like cast their eyes on the Savior. What they wanted to do is meet with him, have an engagement with Jesus. The Lord. Now, question maybe, why not just wait? Why not just wait for your opportunity, right? We have multiple times in the scriptures where we see people waiting for Jesus and he eventually finds them. Why not just wait or why not just find a chance to go to Jesus on their own? Well, there are some possibilities. Maybe they were concerned or maybe they were uh, worried that Jesus wouldn't, in fact, uh, receive any Gentiles. Or possibly he was already in the inner courts, a place that they couldn't go. Again, we don't really know. But either way, when Philip receives this request, he goes to Andrew. Maybe he too was concerned that Jesus wouldn't receive Gentiles. So Philip goes to Andrew and he asks him to help. And then they go to d- together and they make the request known to Jesus. Now, what we know or what we have in the rest of this passage isn't an answer whether or not Jesus does or doesn't meet with them. But what we do have is Jesus' response to the significance of the moment. So we don't really know if Jesus actually met or didn't meet with these Greeks, but what we do have is Jesus' response to the significance of the moment. Think of the significance, right? Jesus came for his people. He came to Israel, the covenantal people. But now these Greeks from the world are going to Jesus. The world is going after him. This is significant. This points to the actual full spectrum of God's plan and purpose for salvation. So what we have, again, is Jesus' response to the significance of the moment. And here is what he says in response. This is what he says in response to Philip and Andrew with the question to meet with the Greeks. He says this in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor him. All right, so so far in John's accounting of Jesus' life and ministry, he has shown Jesus always pointing forward to the appointed time of his death. 
Right? Everything that Jesus has been showing and telling, uh, the signs, the miracles, proving his divinity and constantly saying, this is not the time. This is not my time. The hour has not come. John has been showing everything pointing towards the time of Jesus' appointed death. But now Jesus says, the hour has come. Jesus tells us the hour has come. And he says it sort of in an unexpected way. He says it in sort of an unexpected way, knowing that he knows what is coming. We know he has divine uh, knowledge, knowing that he knows what is coming. We might expect him to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified. Right? Because that's what is coming. That is what his future would be. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Because what we need to understand is that Jesus wasn't focused on the cross. Jesus wasn't, in fact, focused on the cross. Rather, Jesus was focused on fulfilling the Father's will, right? And that is how Jesus saw beyond the cross and the glory that would follow. Christ wasn't focused on the cross. He was focused on fulfilling the Father's will. And that is how he saw beyond the cross to the glory that would follow and we know this because of Hebrews 12 too. It says this, Looking to Jesus, there, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The theme here is God's glory. The theme in all of this is God's glory. We see how Jesus lived and died for God's glory. And this should cause us to ask of ourselves, how am I to follow Christ's example? How am I to follow Christ's example as I too live and serve for God's glory? Right, Christian? That is, should be our question. How am I to follow after Christ's example as I live and serve for God's glory? How are you serving with the life that you've been given. And then Jesus gives us this parable that we are going to work to understand. He gives us this parable as a way to exhort us, maybe even admonish us towards the realization that there cannot be glory without suffering. There cannot be fruitfulness without death. There will not be victory without suffering. Listen to Jesus and how he teaches on this. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I want you to think of the seed as a person and their devotion to God. If it were placed, if we were to place the seed in a jar on a shelf and preserve it, that seed would be worthless, right? It would be worthless because in order for the seed to benefit anyone, it must first be placed in the ground and die, and then in its death, it'd be able to bear much fruit, right? And then it would be able to bear much fruit. Now, that's actually a helpful exhortation from the text about our own faithful service. But ultimately, this is what Jesus is talking about. We can pull that out of the text, but ultimately this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is the one who made certain that through his death, many will be brought full for harvest. 
It is through Christ's death, it is through him dying that the full harvest will be brought, that there will be a great harvest. He has made sure, he has made sure that he will not be the only one seen as righteous in the Father's eyes. Through the humiliation of his death on the cross and in his resurrection, he received glorification and purchased the full harvest of our salvation. You understand? Amen? Oh my goodness. On the cross and his resurrection, that is how he receives full glorification for our salvation. Jesus Christ is the answer to all of our questions. Jesus Christ is the answer to our questions and our example as we live to honor him in our humble exaltation. Now, what does that look like? Now, what does that look like? We, we, we often ask this question, even to ourselves. Sometimes we're not bold enough or uh, courageous enough to ask it out loud because we're thankful for the new life that we have. We're thankful for this spiritual new life that we're given. We get that truth, but what does that mean for us? How do I actually live in this new life that's been given? Well, thankfully, Jesus teaches on that as well. And thankfully, Jesus teaches us this lesson as well because uh, this is the answers that the Greeks needed also. This is also what they needed. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's Christ's answer to how we are to live. It's so complex, but it's so simple as well. The way that we experience the truth of what Jesus has just said is through our service to Christ because of our union in Christ. The way we experience this is through our service to Christ because of our union with Christ. Jesus Christ has not only commanded us to die to ourselves, but he also set the example of how to do it with right humility. That's just 1 Peter 2. Study that with community groups. That's just 1 Peter 2. But here, Jesus said that if you love your own life, you'll lose it. If you love your own life, you will lose it. And logically, that makes perfect sense. Logically, that makes perfect sense because if you love yourself, so much that you depend only on your own opinion above all else, you are fundamentally denying God's sovereignty and His right as Creator. If you are king of your own castle, of lord of your own life, or whatever other uh, pithy statement you want to come up with, if that is you, if you are depending only on your own opinion for all things above all else, you are fundamentally denying God's sovereignty and His right as Creator. And that's idolatry. That is idolatry. In fact, that's idolatry of self, which is at the foundation of every sin. Because in con but in contrast to that, Jesus says this. In contrast to that, Jesus says this. If you hate your life, as it is now in this world, you will have life that is eternal. The contrast of this is that this person desires to deny themselves and their deceitful heart. 
This person desires to not pander to their own self-interest, but instead they also work for the good in the interest of others. Jesus then said, if you serve or if you want to serve me, you will have to follow me. If you want to serve me, you will have to follow me. So where does the son of God serve? Where does the Son of God serve? He glorifies God by serving His church. By serving His church. Through His Spirit, He is at work within us, sanctifying us, and He is at work bringing more people into His kingdom. For us, this, is, for us, this call is about laying down our own desires and comforts. Essentially, we are meant to give up our selfishness and step into what the church needs us to do. Our lives have been purchased with a price for a purpose. We are called into this so we can collectively fulfill the commissioning that is found in Matthew 28, 18, and 20. There is a call, there is a commissioning that Christ has given us in Matthew 28 to, to be disciples who make disciples. Jesus gave his life for us, which allows us to have his life within us. And if we take to heart that teaching, if we take to heart what Jesus is teaching here, we can see that this life cannot be fruitful. This life cannot be life-giving. It will not bring a harvest for the church if we will not yield ourselves to Him. If we will not yield ourselves to Christ, we will not be faithful. It will not be life-giving. And we won't be a part of the harvest that is brought from, for the church through the church we do not give our life to Christ. We must be willing to be planted and settle our roots here with one another in his church. We're going to get there in John 17, but unity is such an important part of God's plan and purpose. Unity of the body is such an important part for the church. Now, Jesus' last words in this passage are maybe some of the most comforting words that are promised to his faithful followers. Verse 26 are maybe some of the most comforting words that are promised to his faithful followers. Here are the two perfect promises from our Lord Christ. Number one, where I, where I am, there will my servant be also. And two, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Where I am, there will my servant be also. Two, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The first promise is nothing less than a guarantee of eternal life in heaven with Him. That's all it is. It's nothing less than a perfect promise, less than a guarantee of eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. Listen to John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is the assurance that we are given by the gospel. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you myself that where I am, you also may be. Amen. Now this second promise this second promise is, is, is also just as unimaginable of a gift. Through our devotion to Jesus Christ, we will be honored by God the Father. 
We will be honored by God the Father. The Father's honor is experienced by everyone who loves and serves His Son. And our honor is salvation in Christ. Our honor is salvation in Christ. We have been brought from enemy to child. We are promised the inheritance of every spiritual blessing that is given to us in Christ. Everything that is available to Him, we are given because of Christ. You're literally brought from death to life. Our honor is salvation in Christ. Listen to Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that is us, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You and me, who are the church, are given life and knowledge in Jesus Christ for the purpose of serving Him and His church. We are called into this together to be united in serving Him and His church. This is our honor to give our lives to Him who has purchased them. It is our honor to give our lives to Him who has purchased them with His own life. Now next week, as we continue on with this, next week we will begin to look at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what He was facing. As he continues to walk towards the cross, we're going to begin to look at what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was facing as he looked to his own suffering and death and how he humanly responds to this ordeal. Remember, Christ is 100% man and 100% God, and both are necessary for this right sacrifice. So we're going to look at how he humanly responded to that ordeal. And the text shows us how his soul was troubled, not because, again, he questioned God's will, but because he was fully conscious of what the, cro- the cross fully involved. And what you'll notice, or I hope you notice, is that Jesus will not ask, what should I do? Because he knew what he was fully ordained to do. But I will ask you, because you too have heard this truth today. Will you follow him? Will you follow him? And if so, how will you serve him? It's our honor and for his glory that we do so. If you would, pray with me. Father, thank you for this honor. Thank you for your goodness and your your abundant grace in bringing... uh, enemies, people who were set against you, Lord, into the kingdom, into your family, and that you have given us so much. Lord, we honor you and we worship you because you are the only one worthy of that honor and praise. Help us, Lord, as we are challenged to follow after you rightly. Please give us a great, greater faith and a deeper knowledge of your Son as, as you assuage the doubt from our life as we look to live it out to your glory. Help us, Lord, in this moment to continue to worship. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. In the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.